I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers that will help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. Last week, I had the opportunity to speak with Robert Reich, the author of The Common Good. He's a political commentator, a former Secretary of Commerce, a professor, and author of another dozen books in addition to his latest book. Uh, We had a far-ranging conversation uh, that included thinking about the intersection of capitalism and progressivism, or if we didn't have Trump, would we have someone just like him, or what does the 2020 election look like, what we can do with citizens and voters. It was just a a fascinating conversation. He is a wildly impressive uh, guy. So uh, take a listen. We are joined today by Robert Reich. He is currently the Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at UC Berkeley and co-founder of Inequality Media, a nonpartisan digital media company with a mission. Its videos, I think I have this right, have been viewed over 440 million times and has four and a half million social media followers. In addition, he's co-created an award-winning documentary called Inequality and a Netflix original documentary called Saving Capitalism. He was formerly in three national administrations, including a secretary of labor in the Clinton administration, and coincidentally, Time magazine named him one of the most effective cabinet secretaries of the 20th century, no small accomplishment. He's written 15 books and joins us today to talk about his most recent book called The Common Good. Mr. Reich describes the common good as the good we have had in common has been a commitment to respecting the rule of law, including its intent and spirit, to protecting our democratic institutions, to discovering and spreading the truth, to being open to change and tolerant of our differences, to ensuring equal political rights and equal opportunity, to participate in our civic life together, and sacrificing for that life together. Note, these are not constitutional rights and freedoms we possess as citizens. They are essential elements of what we owe one another as Americans. These common values have bound us together. They are large and noble obligations. The central moral question of our age is whether we are still committed to them. We will talk today to answer that question, as well as how we got to where we are. How do we repair, fix, and recommit to the notion of shared values? Robert Reich, welcome to Just the Right Book. Uh, well, thank you, Roxanne. Thank you for having me on. Um, my pleasure. So how did we get to where we are now? I think we took these values and commitments uh, too much for granted. Uh, and we allowed our economy and society to uh, center economic and political power uh, in uh, a smaller and smaller group of people at the top. Uh, and some corporations. Uh, not that these people, very wealthy people, and these big corporations are bad. They're, this is not about villainy. 
uh, it's that they accumulated uh, extraordinary political power. And as a result, most Americans felt with justification that they really didn't have a say. Uh, in the 1990s, when I was Secretary of Labor, I saw the beginning of this. Uh, by 2016, uh, both parties, uh, particularly the candidates in the primaries, uh, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, uh, were uh, telling people what they already knew, that the, the game was rigged against them. Uh, and uh, that rigged game, I think, has undermined public confidence in every institution. It's not just, it's not just politics. Uh, it's also the media, uh, universities, big corporations, Wall Street, you name it. Uh, and I think people feel like we've lost a sense of common good, uh, particularly at the highest reaches uh, of this country, that there is um, continuous abuse of, of power. Robert, one of the things that um, I was fascinated by, uh, there was a speech of yours that I listened to that you gave out in California, that in talking about how we've reached the levels of inequality, you start with how the middle class person, starting in the 70s, used a series of levers to sort of stay with their head above water and and now have run out of options. Could you uh, share with us how that family managed to get through the 70s, 80s, and 90s and to today? Yeah, and, and Roxanne, this is very important for understanding what's happened because uh, one of the reasons so many people have become so disenchanted and angry at the entire system, it's not just the economy, obviously, and politics, it's just that they feel like they're not being treated fairly, working harder than ever, getting not getting ahead, uh, is because in the late 70s and early 1980s, uh, something quite dramatic happened to the level of wages. Wages began to stagnate. Most people's wages adjusted for inflation went absolutely nowhere after 78, 79, 80, 81. You look at uh, just what's happened over the past 40 years, and you see that that stagnation existed in sharp contrast to the economy overall. The economy continued to grow. Mm. Activity continued to gain. Uh, but uh, we've had 40 years of wage stagnation, and the typical family uh, began to cope with this stagnation. Uh, and a lot of the stagnation, by the way, expressed itself as declines, actual declines in the wages of men, male workers. Uh, the first coping mechanism was to have women who were already working at home, middle-class women, uh, go into the workforce in very, very large numbers, uh, starting in the late 1970s. You know, many people attribute that to women's liberation and new opportunities for women. Actually, uh, most of the women that went into the paid workforce in the late 70s and starting in the, then and in, in also increasingly in the 1980s, uh, they were not going into it because these wonderful professional opportunities opened up. They, they were going into work to prop up and maintain family incomes that were threatened by the decline in male incomes. Uh, that worked for a time, but that coping mechanism wore out. And finally, uh, long about the early 1990s, families needed another coping mechanism, and that was that everybody had to work longer hours. Uh, the woman and the man, uh, the couple, uh, the partners in a, in a household, everybody started working longer hours. When I was Secretary of Labor, I looked at the 
the data we were collecting, Bureau of Labor Statistics, on hours worked, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, uh, we were working as Americans, uh, putting in more hours than the enormously industrious Japanese. We were we were working more than we had ever worked before, and yet still, people were having a hard time making ends meet, which uh, began the third coping mechanism. The final coping mechanism started in the early 2000s, and that was to use. Uh, homes. People started to use their homes, if they own their homes, uh, as piggy banks uh, to get bank loans against the value of their homes, uh, to have second mortgages, to refinance their homes. And that worked for a time until, obviously, the housing debt bubble burst in 2008. Uh, and it's been since the 2008 bursting of the debt bubble, the financial crisis, that I think a lot of people in this country have uh, become not only uh, economically more vulnerable, feeling more economically vulnerable, but also uh, feeling angrier about a system that just seems to be rotten to the core. So that gives us one of the legs on the stool that I think you talk about that are ingredients of how we got here. So you have a you have a long list that sort of calendarized of a series of events, which was interesting to read through. But then you aggregate them into three of the most significant sources of that uh, breakdown. Share with us what those are. Uh, well, you had particularly uh, in corporations and also in politics uh, a kind of a, a sense that anything goes, uh, whatever it takes to make a profit, whatever it takes uh, to get ahead, whatever it takes to win an election, uh, and and ultimately whatever it takes to change the rules of the market so that if you are a politician or if you are very powerful, uh, you can come out ahead. Uh, this is, you know, we, we take it for granted now uh, that corporations and even many politicians are going to use whatever strategies they can to win. Winning becomes more important than actually maintaining the institutional integrity of uh, the free market economy, uh, corporations, uh, individual politicians, political parties, political institutions, our democracy. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the most of the post-war era, uh, post-World War II, uh, we didn't have that attitude as a culture, as a society, mm -hmm. that anything, whatever it took to win, was appropriate and, and okay. We, we were much more conscious of our institutions. That, that's part of the common good. One of the examples uh, that you bring up is sort of an accidental conversation uh, that you had with uh, Wells Fargo CEO, who in the brief conversation with you, you might have thought was the most generously spirited, beneficent CEO. And then all, all the news came out about Wells Fargo. But there's two things that were striking to me when I was reading different segments. One is this notion that we have shifted from stakeholder to shareholder capitalism. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit. And then the other is the notion that the last lever that your families used, home equity, they might have lost their houses, their lives may have been destroyed. But an added ingredient to their feeling like the system was rigged is not one Wall Street executive was held accountable in the 2008 meltdown. And 
And if a corporation was liable, it was the corporation and they were fined and no individual was fined. So talk a little bit about the shift that's happened in how we think about capitalism. And is it realistic for us to think that we can go back to a notion of stakeholder capitalism when the market is rewarding shareholder capitalism? Well, you know, it wasn't that many years ago uh, that stakeholder capitalism was the dominant uh, idea. And by stakeholder capitalism, I mean, meant that a, a corporation existed not just for shareholders and not just to maximize shareholder returns, uh, but also it existed for the communities in which it had grown up, uh, like uh, Kodak uh, in Rochester or Corning in Corning, New York, or I uh, go around the country. Uh, and also that a corporation existed for its workers, not just its shareholders, that it had, in other words, a whole variety of stakeholders um, that had an interest in the success of the corporation. Uh, that idea, which really became a, quite a dominant idea in the 1930s through the 1940s, uh, and 50s, uh, it really reached its zenith in some sense in the 1960s. Uh, that idea was completely gutted by the wave of corporate raiders uh, in starting in the late mm-hmm. 70s, early 1980s, yeah. uh, who swooped in, uh, took over corporations, uh, or threatened to take over corporations, uh, with the threat that if the CEOs did not maximize shareholder returns, then uh, the raiders would do so instead. Uh, and those corporate raiders, uh, who now are called much more euphemistically uh, private equity uh, managers, uh, some of them uh, are hedge fund uh, managers, uh, but that whole notion of taking over a corporation and forcing it or making it maximize shareholder returns uh, was quite antithetical to the dominant view of stakeholder capitalism. Shareholder capitalism uh, resulted and has resulted uh, in a massive effort by big corporations to hold down wages, uh, which entails fighting unions, uh, shipping jobs abroad, bringing in labor-saving technologies, uh, basically doing whatever you can uh, to maximize shareholder returns and at the same time uh, desert your communities, leave your communities uh, in the lurch, many Midwestern towns, upstate New York. There are so many places around this country that are now have essentially denuded of their old industrial mm. base, and it's not just industry, it's also services, uh, but also um, uh, get rid of your labor unions, which had been the countervailing power uh, balancing uh, corporate power in the 1950s and 60s and, and even early 1970s. Uh, and without, without those countervailing powers, without that notion that the corporation had some responsibility to its communities and its workers, we have this kind of really almost grotesque, distorted uh, system uh, in which, again, profits keep growing, uh, the rich keep doing better and better, uh, but most people feel like they're working harder and getting nowhere. And this is a very big part of the story, and it's mm. an under, it's, it's, it's understated. Uh, and ultimately, all of these trends, Roxanne, lead to Donald Trump, uh, who's not, uh, he's not the source of these problems. He's sort of the, the consequence, the, mm-hmm. the culmination. Uh, and if, uh, you know, if we didn't have Trump, we'd have somebody just exactly like him, and we may have Trumps as far as the eye can see, because people are so angry, they feel like the system simply 
is not working. Mm. Is it fair to say, from all the reading I've done uh, by you and the other books I've read and the documentaries, I get the impression that you most assuredly believe that capitalism and progressive politics can comfortably coexist? Because a lot of people would say, fine, fine, fine. The progressives don't want anybody to make money. They want everybody to be even. They want it to be communistic or socialistic. But I think your contention is, uh, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is these things can actually coexist. Well, not only can they coexist, uh, but they must. Uh, if we're going to preserve uh, something called capitalism, now I don't want to get into labels. I mean, you know, when Franklin D. Roosevelt came up with Social Security, uh, a lot of people accused him of being a socialist. When when Lyndon Johnson came up with Medicare, a lot of people accused him of being a socialist. I don't know exactly. We can define these terms the way we want to. Uh, but my point is that unless we have some social safety nets, unless we right. have a society that seems to be working for everybody, uh, not creating equal outcomes, but certainly providing equal opportunity, uh, then we're, 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 we're just generating a lot of uh, social anger, a lot of social unrest. Uh, you know, 51% of Republicans on the latest poll uh, say they want to raise taxes on the wealthy. Now, this is 51% of Republicans, not right. Democrats. <laughs> Democrats are higher. 51% of Republicans say that taxes should be raised on the wealthy. Uh, 70% of Americans want uh, Medicare for all. Uh, these, they, they, this is not a matter of some, somehow uh, Americans now embrace socialism. No, Americans want a fair a deal, uh, as it used to be called. Uh, Americans uh, want a, a system in which if people really do work hard and they are honest and they uh, play by the rules that they, uh, they, they can expect that they're going to do better and better and their children are going to do better and better. The, the American economy keeps on growing. I mean, it's, it's now, and it continues to be the largest economy in the world, the most successful economy in the world, uh, but um, people are not doing well, and I think they're not doing well because our democracy uh, is being dominated by these large uh, concentrations of wealth and power uh, and people uh, just don't have a say. We can't get Medicare for all. We can't get uh, good education, good schools for our kids. We can't possibly even get uh, what we need in terms of you know, infrastructure. And why can't we? Uh, because the powers that are dominating our political and democratic life together, small d, uh, are not permitting it to happen. Mm. You know, an author that I interviewed a couple of weeks ago in New York was Tim Wu, um, who uh, wrote a book called The Attention Merchants. But the book uh, that I uh, spoke with him about was his latest book called The Curse of Bigness, which is antitrust in the new Gilded Age. And he was in the Obama administration and regrets some of the difficulty that they had in beginning to address antitrust. But his feeling is that a companion to this kind of conversation that we're having is that, because uh, I know you mentioned Bork in your book about the hearings, but ironically, Bork is the one who narrowed down the antitrust provisions of the Sherman Act down to is it good or bad for the consumer, meaning price? But, but again, not with a sense towards the common good. Yes, and I, and I think that that, that is a, another very important related piece of it. Uh, 
uh, in the 1980s under the Reagan administration, uh, they took Bork's view and they took a lot of uh, views of the so-called University of Chicago School, right? Uh, and uh, which stood for the very narrow proposition that the only uh, relevant factor is is consumer welfare, rather than the welfare of the whole, rather than protecting uh, the free market, rather than protecting our system of democracy. Uh, and uh, I, I think that antitrust is a good example. Uh, of what we need to restore. We did have a powerful notion starting in 1890 with the Sherman Antitrust Act and continuing through the Clayton Act of 1914 uh, that if, if companies got too big and too politically powerful, that was dangerous for our economy uh, in terms of hurting innovation, making it hard just for small businesses to compete, and also it was dangerous for a political system. Uh, and we understood that we break we broke up Ma Bell. Uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt broke up the Standard Oil Company. Uh, Republicans, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, this was not a bipartisan. This was not a partisan issue. It was a right. bipartisan issue. Uh, and then the this notion again around the same time, this 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 critical fulcrum, late seventies, early eighties, the Reagan administration particularly uh, gave up on antitrust. And, you know, before we move on to, you know, your thoughts on how we fix it, and I, I'm going to encourage all our listeners to read your book because I think the historical perspective that you bring to where we are is an important ingredient to thinking about how we go about fixing it. But before we get to that, you know, one of the things I – I wonder about sometimes, and I thought about it again uh, reading the book, is, is it that the majority of people really have uh, lost this ability of shared values, or is it that the way in which the media, particularly the social media works today, has given the bigger platform to the extremists and the majority of people still share those values? Or has there been erosion, a substantial erosion even of that? Well, according to, it, it is very difficult to tell, Roxanne, obviously, but uh, on the basis of uh, polls on the basis of focus groups, on the basis of almost everything we know today. Uh, there has been some erosion of confidence, uh, not only in the big institutions of our lives, as I said, government and corporations and the media and even universities and certainly Wall Street, uh, but there's also been a, a kind of a, an erosion of a sense that we can trust each other. And trust is really the essence of any society. Uh, because we've got to trust that other people are going to reciprocate mm. if we're going to sacrifice. I mean, if, if I'm going to willingly pay my taxes, uh, I want to be sure that most other people are going to pay their taxes. I don't right. want to be a chump. Uh, nobody wants to be a chump when it comes to sacrificing for the common good. Uh, and after the depression of the 1930s, the depression decade of the 30s, and after World War II, we came out of those experiences, that generation, uh, with a sense of common solidarity, a sense of common good. We understood that we all did need to sacrifice for the whole if we were going to be uh, a society that advanced, that had opportunities for everybody, that uh, where the rising tide, as John F. Kennedy said, uh, lifted all boats. 
but in recent years, and again, I think Trump culminates this. He's not the cause of it, but he's kind of the, the consequence of all of this. Uh, there has been a creeping selfishness, uh, more, more, more greed. You remember the old uh, greed is good mm-hmm. uh, notion of the 1980s, where people began to forget the common good. Uh, that began to be undermined, and you got into a kind of vicious cycle. Once it got undermined, it's very hard to reestablish that social trust. Okay, now we have the heavy lift, Robert. Well, it is a heavy lift. On the other <laughs> hand, I want to be as optimistic as I can, and I am optimistic, uh, because if you look at the last time this happened in this country, it was the 1880s, 1890s, uh, the so-called Gilded Age. Mm. A very, very wide uh, inequality of, of income and wealth and political power, a lot of corruption, uh, uh, huge poverty, uh, a few people at the top who were really in charge of everything, uh, a lot of uh, distrust toward our institutions and a sense that America's best days were behind it. Uh, well, it turned out that the pendulum swung, swung in the opposite direction. Mm. Uh, we had a a movement starting in 1901 with Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson and and others, uh, a progressive movement uh, that established uh, a new public good, a new norm, a new set of norms uh, that reestablished in turn uh, our, our basic principles of, of equal opportunity, of, of, uh, of democratic government. Uh, you know, as Louis Brandeis, uh, Louis Brandeis, the great Supreme Court Justice, uh, said uh, at that time, as we were coming into that progressive era, uh, he said we have a basic choice in this country. We, we can either have a huge amount of money in the hands of very few people, or we can have a democracy. But we can't have both. Mm. And so what do you think are the first steps that need to happen? And let's talk about it in two contexts. One is on a macro level what needs to happen. And on a micro level, what do those of us that are not in political office need to do as voters, as citizens ourselves, to contribute to working our way back to this notion? Uh, Well, Roxanne, I've spent half of my adult life uh, in Washington in politics, the other half teaching, uh, and I've been in the private sector as well. Uh, I have spent, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 72 years old. I've seen a lot. Mm. And I can tell you that on the basis of what I've seen and the basis of what I've lived, there is no substitute for citizens who are activists, yeah. uh, who care deeply about their communities and who dare care deeply about the country and understand that citizenship involves not just voting and serving on juries and paying taxes, but it involves taking a very active role uh, in uh, in, in our democracy. Uh, right. There's no substitute for this. We, you know, the, Washington uh, is the last place. I mean, you, you, you can't expect uh, our elected leaders, no matter how good they are, uh, to be able to do anything that is really significantly important uh, or be change agents toward uh, your concept of, of a good society or social justice if, unless there are people behind them uh, pushing them to do so. Uh, in the election of 1936, Franklin D. Roosevelt was, was hectored by uh, a voter who said, uh, uh, Mr. President, I'm going to vote for you for re-election, for becoming our president for another term, uh, but you have to promise me that you'll do this and this and this and this. And she had a very long list. And finally, 
um, the story goes, Roosevelt turned to her and said, Ma'am, I would like to do everything on your list, but you must make me. (laughs) And and, And that notion that you must make these people do what is necessary for this country uh, is very much the case today, even more so. Mm. Um, I was in Washington uh, earlier this week, Roxanne, and, uh, uh, you know, meeting with uh, people who I thought were very, very good elected officials, very good politicians, uh, cared actually very deeply about what they were doing. Uh, But they felt constrained because they felt that uh, the people back home didn't understand the issues or would not let them do what they thought was important to do. Uh, and they, they wondered, uh, in this era of Fox News and social media and, uh, and the kind of distortions, uh, the weaponizing of disinformation, uh, whether they could count on the people back home to be there, uh, pushing them to do the right thing. Well, it, it, it all depends on, on, on being an activist. It all depends on organizing and mobilizing and, and energizing the people around you. Mm. you. You know, it was interesting. Recently, Madeleine Albright was here for an event uh, for the bookstore, and um, we had a conversation, and, and she talked about much the same thing, that each of us need to then take responsibility that we need to be voting for candidates, and it doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democratic, but those that are willing to go to Washington to be reasonable and understand politics as the art of compromise, not not this kind of so, siloed operation that we're seeing on both sides of the aisle. Yes, and we not only do we have to vote, but my point is we've got to continue to be activists after voting. Mm. We've got to continue to uh, write to our members of Congress, to phone them, to organize others to do the same thing, to, uh, to actually, uh, in my experience, uh, you know, most people uh, at the ground level, at the grassroots, are very reasonable. They, they want for themselves and their families and their communities what everybody else does. Yeah. Uh, they're not, most people are not. Uh, strong partisans. They're not uh, uh, extremists. Uh, they they want, you know, they want health care. They will read at a reasonable cost. They want good education for their kids. They they want a retirement, a retirement security. They want job security to the extent that they can. Uh, they want to be able to get ahead. They want their kids to be able to get ahead. They, they they're not revolutionaries. They uh, they're they're neither on the left nor the extreme right. They they simply want what Americans have always wanted, and they want a democracy that works. Uh, and they want companies and 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 an economy that is uh, that is basically fair in the sense that it rewards people who are working hard and it and it doesn't just reward people at the top uh, CEOs who are now making three hundred times what the typical worker is is earning uh, rather than in the nineteen seventies twenty times what the typical worker right. is earning we've gone from twenty times the typical earner for CEO pay in the 1970s to 300 times now in the uh, in, in 2019. Uh, well, most people say, well, that's just wrong. Why should CEOs be paid that kind of money? Why is the system uh, so distorted? Uh, well, what I say back to people is it doesn't have to be that way. Mm. Uh, you know, you can be an activist, even an activist investor. You can be an activist consumer. Uh, you can boycott. You can get involved uh, even at the economic level. You know, the the I own a bookstore, and so the the I obviously, as a, a bookstore owner, have the, you know, gorilla of competitors, and 
you know, so you often hear about price, and my line is always, do you understand the cost of the lowest price? Like, they understand that they want to get the book for half the price, but they don't want to understand why their main street has disappeared and they have to go to the Walmart or even that might be gone and they have to buy online. So understanding the the ramifications of our behavior um, is also, I think, part of being an activist. You know, sometimes we just don't want to be inconvenienced. Well, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we buy books online because it's it's convenient, but we say we want our bookstores, uh, we we want our main streets, we want local retailers. Uh, well, uh, you know, we've created in a way Amazon, uh, and uh, I, I'm not criticizing Amazon, and I'm not criticizing anybody who uses Amazon. I'm just saying that we've got to be aware that we've got to live up to our own values, That's and those right. values may entail some sacrifice. Uh, one of the themes of the book. Uh, is that um, we really do have to be serious about our responsibilities to one another and right. to the country. Uh, it's not just a matter of rights. Uh, we, yes, we have a Bill of Rights, but we also um, have and used to have, and I think things still do have, a Bill of Responsibilities. And the question is what we owe each other as members of the same society. Uh, you know, the, the problem uh, and the confusion today is that nationalism uh, as preached by some people in Washington, is a matter of exclusion. Mm. It, uh, it, it's you know they think that uh, well to be nationalistic uh, to be to stand up for America is to stand up for what uh, for white people or to stand up for Christianity or to stand up for uh, kind of uh, America as it was 150 years ago. No, what really binds us together is not the color of our skin. It's not uh, our religion. It is not anything except a set of values and ideals about equal opportunity, about democracy, about uh, the importance of, uh, of our working together to build this country and sacrificing uh, for, for something that's greater than ourselves in terms of a society that works for everybody. Uh, that's what binds us together. That's what generations of new immigrants to this country have adopted as their own civic religion. Mm. So, Robert, you say in your book that a president's most fundamental responsibility is to uphold and protect our system of government, and and you say that Trump has weakened that system. So the the next big decision that we all have as a statement of where we want our country to go will be the 2020 election. One theory is that Trump won't run again. Um, I guess a out there theory would be that Trump's impeached. I don't hold much um, substance to that one. So who do you see on the Democratic side that, and you don't have to name one name since uh, that probably wouldn't appeal to you, but who do you see or what qualities among the candidates do you see as um, symbolizing and embodying the kinds of principles that you're talking to about that we so clearly need to come back to? Well, I think uh, basically uh, we have got to have people who, uh, who, who are genuine and authentic, who come across not as politicians but as real people. Uh, secondly, we've got to have um, a candidate and a president uh, who understands that there's a difference between the people and the powerful and who is on the side of the people mm. uh, and uh, wants to rein in uh, the powerful. 
uh, not in the kind of fake way that Donald Trump has done, because he's a Trojan horse for the powerful. He cuts taxes on the wealthy, cuts taxes on big corporations. He he actually is making it much more difficult for average people to get ahead. Uh, No, we need somebody who is actually going to be working very hard uh, for average people. Uh, And one way of doing that is to strengthen our democracy. Uh, we need to have somebody who uh, knows uh, what it is that average people are going through today. I mean, uh, the, the economic uh, difficulties of people, it's not an abstraction. Uh, I mean, most people today have not been able to save. Uh, this is different from a previous generation. And it's not because they, they are bad people. It's not because they're indulgent. It's because they haven't earned very much. They haven't learned. Um, their, their incomes have not uh, kept up. Uh, with inflation, uh, while the cost of housing uh, and the cost of higher education and and the cost of many things has just soared so far beyond inflation that that people cannot save. It's not their fault. Mm. Uh, And uh, it's also not their fault that they have less job security today than uh, any generation since the 1930s. Uh, Well, uh, the next president has got to deal with that as well and has got to get uh, Congress working on it uh, across the aisle. So speaking um, of the next president, what, one of the most chilling statements I heard uh, during the Michael Cohn hearings, aside from, you know, the rest of it, was his quote saying, given my experience working for Mr. Trump, I fear that if he loses the election in 2020, that there will never be a peaceful transition of power. What do you make of that s- statement by him? Well, I, th- I also found it a chilling statement. Uh, again, going back to uh, my premise, the most important thing that a president does, the, the center of the oath of office, is to protect our democracy. Mm. So to raise the specter of not being willing to abide by the results of the democratic election uh, is, uh, I think, a violation of that public trust, as mm. Donald Trump did uh, even before he was elected. I mean, he said he was asked repeatedly, will you concede if you are not elected, if you don't win the vote? And he kept saying, well, I'm, I'm not sure because I, I fear voter fraud. And there hasn't been any evidence of voter fraud. <laughs> right. he, he lies to the public repeatedly about voter fraud, said that there were three million votes that were cast illegally, and put up a, created a commission to find those fraud, that voter fraud, and there hasn't been any fraud. Uh, to me, that is the essence of, uh, of, of a president that really is violating that sacred duty to the public to guard and protect democracy. Do you think there's any credence to the possibility that um, Trump after, you know, too many investigations and too much risk to his wealth might decide that he could characterize his four years as the greatest president ever, and there's not possibly more that anybody could accomplish and he'll go home? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I I, I think that one of the things that he cannot abide, cannot tolerate, is failure, Mm. uh, losing. Uh, So maybe if he thinks that there's enough uh, chance that he'll lose, he just won't. He'll just quit. You know, I think that there is certainly that possibility. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, my hope, Roxanne, is that one thing that we all learn from this, whether we're pro-Trump or against Trump, whether we're Republican or Democrat, uh, is that we go back to first principles. That that this this entire experience has taught us the importance of the Constitution and uh, and our democracy and uh, our uh, allegiance to the processes 
uh, of our government and to uh, the greater good, the common good, uh, that we cannot any longer assume that the wheels of government will just automatically do the right thing or that we will automatically elect somebody or that we can yeah. just turn our backs. Um, we've got to see that politics and economics are intertwined, and if we don't have an economy that seems fair, if we don't have a political system that seems unrigged, uh, we are going to get a, a series of demagogues that threaten the foundations of America. Mm. Well, on that note, I'll close with two questions because I'm mindful of our time, and I'll give them both to you at the same time. Um, do you feel hopeful that we can make uh, this transition? And two, uh, the question I always ask our guests is, what's the book that changed your life? Uh, well, let me just say, uh, on the book that changed my life, I... I read and was very influenced by um, a man named John Kenneth Galbraith, mm. uh, an economist that was, he was much more than an economist. He was a kind of public philosopher. Uh, and as a kid growing up, I read everything that he wrote, including uh, uh, a wonderful book called The Affluent Society mm. in the 1950s. And I think that in some ways uh, that did change my life. I, I thought of things differently after I read that book. Uh, what makes me optimistic, uh, Roxanne, is, uh, number one, uh, just knowing history, knowing this, this great uh, uh, pendulum that swings uh, back and forth in history, that, that no matter how far we seem to have left our moorings and, and, uh, and kind of deserted our basic principles, uh, the pendulum does manage to swing back, and I think it's already starting uh, to swing back. Uh, secondly, I am blessed by being a teacher. I, mm. every day, in fact, uh, in about 15 minutes, I am teaching a class of 800 undergraduates. Wow. Uh, who, and they keep me young, and they keep me optimistic because they are so uh, themselves idealistic. Mm. Uh, I've been teaching off and on in universities for the past uh, 45 years, and uh, I don't think I've, I've ever come across a generation of college students uh, as idealistic and, and committed and determined to make the world better than the current generation. Uh, and that certainly makes me optimistic. Mm. Well, Robert, I, I really, we've been talking with Robert Reich, uh, the author of The Common Good. I'd like to thank you for a series of things. One is uh, the work that you do, uh, the documentaries uh, that you've done, the work that you are uh, doing teaching our kids, and th this book, I think, is timed so brilliantly. I think people are ready to be thinking of a positive way in which we can move forward. And I think you provide both the historical perspective and the recipe for our moving forward. So I want to thank you for that. And certainly thank you for taking the time for talking with us. Well, thank you so much, Roxanne. Thanks again to Robert Reich. His book, The Common Good, is available right now. Be sure to pick up a copy at your favorite independent bookstore. If you haven't subscribed to Just the Right Book yet, it's free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.